Greetings, friends, and welcome to Breakfast in the Ruins, a Michael Moorcock flavoured podcast. On this show, I'm finally joined by Simon Perrins. Simon is an artist, illustrator, and all round top fella whose work you'll recognise as he's behind the visual identity of this podcast. And if you're a follower of the Grognard Files, you'll also recognise his extensive work for the Grogmates of the last couple of years. May even have the t shirt. We cover a lot of ground from a starting base of the artists that have graced the covers of Moorcock's work and interpreted his characters for comics and graphic novels. Actually, we cover a lot of ground before we even hit that base. It's always a challenge for a podcast talking about visual stimulation via an audio medium, but I'll pop pics in the show notes on the Patreon page and the blog at breakfastintheruins.com as an accompaniment or reference. Also, for those listeners that tune in on YouTube, we'll stick some images in the video file, although that might take a bit longer to appear, as I forgot to tie them to a timestamp when I was gathering them. Fortunately, as is de rigueur for Breakfast in the Ruins, we also head down various rabbit holes not so strictly art-focused. We've had lots of engagement from the Moonbeam Roads community in the last couple of weeks, and we'll take a look at some of that in the outro. But for now, join us in Derry and Tom's as we discuss Moorcock, art, comics, Tolkien, TV adaptations, role-playing games, tortured poet musicians we adored in our youths, and some of the guff. We're back at Derry and Tom's, and we have with us Simon Perrins. Hello, Simon. Hi. And welcome to Derry and Tom's. We've been talking about doing this for absolutely ages, but it feels like about two years, doesn't it? I think it probably is about two years. Yeah. But for one reason or another, we've we've never kind of made it happen. So at the weekend, I just dropped you a line and said, "Let's just do Tuesday night," and and wing it. So we're uh, whilst we might have a, a slight set of mental notes on where the conversation might go, which always tends to break down on this anyway, and we end up going off on wild tangents. Uh, we just decided, fuck it, let's do it. So it's great to have you here. And not only that, but you are such a core part of this show's identity. It's really absolutely shameful on my part that we haven't made this happen sooner. Well, yeah. I, I mean, you've been talking to like like proper proper people. <laughs> <laughs> people with perhaps something more to say than than me. I don't I don't think you're gonna get any scintillating uh, literary analysis from me. I'll just talk about pretty pictures uh and well, how cool dragons and swords and things are. And you know what? That is the purpose of this. And you're an artist, you know what you're talking about. Oh, uh, somebody mentioned on Twitter today, somebody made a uh it was Miles made a comment about the character of Ryan in the Black Corridor. And it was a really astute observation. Whereas all I said all the way through the Black Corridor was, wow, what a prick this guy is. Fuck <laughs> that look. So I, I rely on people who know what they're talking about to actually, you know, make the show a little, the show a little bit more erudite and uh, and enlightened. And from an art perspective, you are very much that. So I suppose going back a little bit, the first time we came across each other was just being part of the same RPG community on Twitter sure, for all intents yeah. and purposes, wasn't it? Yeah. I realised you were an artist, you were at Thought Bubble that year and I went yeah. to Thought Bubble that year and we caught up, had a conversation and uh, I commissioned a sketch off you and a few weeks later you sent me a sketch of three of the companions to the champion which were Rakia the Red Archer 
Moonglum and Jari Akonel. And I was absolutely blown away, blown away by the picture, blown away by the style. I think at this point, we should probably point out that we're going to be talking about art and interpretations of Moorcock on an audio, <laughs> on an audio medium. The ideal uh, forum yeah. to talk about visual material, just describe stuff. <laughs> yeah. But I was thinking perhaps, I, I do remember when I first put an episode of this on YouTube before I realised that Podbean would actually automate it for you. So like a clown, I spent absolutely ages buggering about with a, a video suite to try and turn an audio file into something that had, um, you know, occasional visuals. It was very poor and very primitive, but perhaps we could do something like that for this. So when we actually are talking about a specific picture or a specific artist, maybe we can throw some visuals up, which actually show that what we're talking about. And mm. also, I'll put it in the show notes as well, or in a forty-seven mile long Twitter thread <laughs> to accompany to accompany I, the show. I find so often when I'm listening to podcasts, I feel the need to Google. Mm. Uh, what people are talking about I mean often with Breakfast in the Ruins you're talking about a particular cover and I'm like is that one I know and mm. I look it up um, but I think it's it's also going to be fun to just describe stuff and mm. uh, your listeners can uh, m- see if they can make head or tail of what we're talking about and then yeah. you know we we give them the links yeah I think that's a fair approach and in some ways uh, we should probably point out this is going to be a two-stage conversation because i'm sure we'll get into comic uh interpretations of some of mocock's stuff as well but we were talking a couple of weeks ago about an 80s comic an independent comic um published by who published this trident comics in the uk called saga of the man elf it was a five issue run written by guy lawley and the first couple of comics were drawn by Steve Whitaker. And Michael Mocock actually wrote an introduction to it and allowed them to use characters from his Jerry Cornelius novels in the comic. So we were having a quick conversation about that. And I thought, I wonder if it's possible to get hold of this guy, Lolly fella. So I had a good search around the internet and couldn't find anything else that he'd done in terms of comic art. But I did find a guy, Lolly. It was a professor working at a university and lecturing in the field of things like comics and comic art. I thought, well, that's a coincidence. So I emailed him at his academic email account and said, I'm just wondering, Guy, if you are the guy who wrote Saga of the Man Elf. And he came back about a week later saying, oh, yeah, that's me. And uh, I haven't thought about that for quite a long time. It seems like ages ago, and of course, it was the early 80s. And I dropped him a line again to say, would you be interested on coming on the podcast to talk not only about your work on Saga of the Man Elf, but the work you do more broadly? And rather wonderfully, he said yes. So we're not going to talk anymore about Saga of the Man Elf right now. But what I am going to do is reread them. I'm going to post them to you so you can read them. And then we're going to drop Guy a line. And we're going to get him on the show, and the three of us are going to have a conversation, and that'll form the second half of this episode. So that's quite cool. And something yeah, to look I, forward I believe to. he's going to have a reread of them himself, isn't he? Yeah. So that's uh, that's really exciting because I've had these kicking around on the shelf in a plastic bag for years, and always wondered about uh, you know the history of them and, and why they were written and by whom. So that's going to be really cool. But this is your first time on the show. And whilst I've got a few random 
wing it questions for you. One of which is Marillion related. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we always ask new guests, what's your history with Moorcock? Okay, well, I thought you'd ask me that. Mm. I, yeah, and I've been trying to, I've been trying to think, and it's it, it's tricky because I don't remember exactly when it was. Um, I, I think, like a lot of a lot of your listeners and a lot of the people we interact with on Twitter, your sort of love Moorcock is uh, tied in with your love of gaming, mm. and like with with me, I came to those things absolutely at the same time. And you know, I was a subscriber to White Dwarf. And my very first issue of White Dwarf was number 57. And I don't know if you remember issue 57, but that was uh, the issue where Thrud the Barbarian met Eric of Boney Maloney. <laughs> yeah, Boney Maloney. <laughs> and at the time, I'd never read yeah. any Moorcock, but somehow I I got it. I sort of understood what it was getting at. So I must have read about Moorcock, mm. I think, in like either like an introduction to Dungeons & Dragons or... Dicing with Dragons by Ian Livingstone, because they would always have the same, they'd always start with, um, you know, this comes from Tolkien, it comes mm. from Jack Vance, it comes from Fritz Lieber, it comes from Michael Moorcock. So I must I must have known something about Elric, and I must have just had a vague impression that there was this, you know, albino warrior who was a bit emo. I mean, we wouldn't have said emo back then, but that, no. was, that was definitely the vibe that was going on. Um, he invented emo. Exactly, yeah. yeah. But uh, yeah, I get sort of getting into gaming. I was really into the fighting fantasy game books, like like most uh, British people of a certain vintage yep. who are into gaming. Yeah, uh, and I, I I got to what I thought was the last uh, fighting fantasy book, which I think was number nine. Uh, you know, unsuspecting that there'd be like fifty more yeah. down down the line. And I thought, oh well, now it's time for me to start reading not like fantasy novels you yeah. know um and i think i read the hobbit and i started reading lord of the rings i think that took like two years but i went to my local library and they had elric melnibinay the eternal champion and the warhound and the world's pain so they were the mm. first three Moorcock books that i read um and this must have been very very soon after i read that uh white dwarf with thrud mm. because from that I, you know, I read as many Elric books as I could and then started reading the Corrin books. I think the the next one after those three I read was The Night of the Swords. And, there, you know, I, you know, my little group of gaming friends who were all into Moorcock as well. So we were all buying the books and sort of lending them to each other. And, yeah, sort of working my way through, you know, definitely the Eternal Champion, uh, you know, the core four. Yeah. Um, and, you know, obviously looking back now, there's been so many Elric books since then but mm. I don't, there were only six or seven then and uh you know the first one wasn't being published by uh Grafton um that sort of came later and uh yeah there were a couple a couple of others that were sort of hard to get hold of I think Stormbringer was I didn't couldn't get hold of that for mm. quite a while but but yeah and and from there you, you know just um just sort of explored the 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 universe and and again not long after that imagine magazine did their um michael moorcock special which i've got of course here uh, this the, is, uh, is is that the rodney matthews cover cover as well yeah, yeah yeah um and jez goodwin are inside um and that that this is not the copy i had at the time that's long gone but i got yeah. this on ebay maybe 
10, 15 years ago. Yeah. Um, and yeah, there was an interview with Moorcock. There was like an introduction to his world. So I was reading that after reading a couple of Elric stories and maybe the Eternal Champion and, and starting to kind of get a, an impression that there was this whole universal multiverse and, mm. and how these characters interrelated. And that sort of made sense to me. I, I guess I'd been into science fiction and things. Mm. I understood the concept of parallel worlds and stuff, but this this idea that you know this same character was kind of recurring mm. throughout these you know throughout these different universes and uh, you know li- living out the same story but in a different way that that I found that really compelling and and of course later on played Stormbringer you know really got into Stormbringer yep. and played that a lot. So so yeah, that's pretty much. My yeah. my uh, my my Moorcock origin. Yeah, there's something super exciting in those days, wasn't there, about um, picking up another book about another aspect of the Eternal Champion and making a connection and recognizing a reference, yeah. or having a character pop up. It, the the idea of a shared universe, which we now take for granted with things like the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and mm-hmm. really what people are experiencing now, watching She Hulk and Wong turning up is exactly what used to happen when you were reading Michael Moorcock books in the seventies and eighties. It was it was the equivalent of that, and there was nothing else like it. It was fantastic. Yeah, but there, there was the, the whole thing of um, you know it, you don't necessarily start out thinking that these characters are all mm. part of this the same the, the same milieu. Like um, you know, you originally picking up Hawkmoon, it's like, well, it's a completely different world. It's yeah. a similar fantasy book. And obviously this is a guy who's writing a lot of different fantasy books, but like it was it was that moment of excite excitement when it's like, mm. oh now, now it's starting to kind of tie into the bigger story and you to see the themes and those sorts of things. Mm. I remember reading one of the dances at the end of time books and Oswald Bastable and Una Person turn up. And it blew my mind. Yeah. <laughs> it absolutely blew my mind. I was like, what's going on? Yeah. This is amazing. And I think I've probably said it before, but on some levels, I do wonder if Moorcock did all this out of design. I'm sure there was a, an element of design to it, but I also wonder if there was an element of laziness to it <laughs> as well. And just um, having constant crossovers and, and constantly kind of recycling and mm. and regenerating. But you know, it works, doesn't it? Yeah. It's super exciting. Yeah. He he can't have been thinking that his books would, you know, go on to be read many, many years down the line because yeah. he was he was writing a lot of them so quickly and some of them were short stories and appeared yeah. in magazines. And he, he he must have just been kind of churning this stuff out and you know, coming up with so many ideas and you know, to sort of later down the line sort of try and tie it together. I mean, I remember like um the the eternal champion i always had the impression that was the fir- the first one he wrote just yeah. because it w- it seemed to be like the keystone of everything mm. and and I, and I had no idea the the order that all these books had originally been written i really really got the impression that that was the first one then it was elric and then mm. it was corum mm. and then hawkmoon last because i read hawkmoon last but you know it's all i mean a lot of them were being done at the same time right a lot of the hawkmoon and Cor- and elric books yeah uh, i think and when when it comes to Elric, certainly, actually, of course, we've just got Citadel of Forgotten Myths releasing in December. Mm. And the makeup of the early Elric novels were novellas kit-bashed together. 
yeah. that were written a lot earlier. So he was writing novellas in the early 60s, and then he would kitbash them later into novels. And I think anybody who pops up and maybe and thinks that Citadel of Forgotten Myths that releases in December is disappointing because it's the first two books are republished novellas written in the last 10, 15 years doesn't understand the history of Elric novels yeah. because that's exactly how yeah. they, they came about in the first place. And it's, it is absolutely on brand yeah. for Mocock to do that, to, re, to revise a couple of novellas and weave them into something larger. It's part of his pattern. I mean, I think the wonderful thing about uh, Moorcock is, you know, I mean, the, the stuff that drives Tolkien fans crazy is, well, well what is canon? Because he wrote this thing and it slightly contradicts uh, this thing and yeah. you know obviously with the star wars universe you've have all this expanded you know, expanded universe all this fiction some mm-hmm. of it is being contradicted and so you know while you know the marvel comics contradicted the novels and mm-hmm. well which is which is the real one and the real one is always the one you read first the one you like the best but with Moorcock yeah. doing a, a a version of a story that he's done before and like changing the details like the um the i think it's the jade man man's eyes that yeah. he rewrote it's it absolutely works because there's infinite <laughs> there's infinite versions of these universes you know it can he can go back and he can change his books and republish them as much as it, he wants and it absolutely fits and it's one of the few yeah. it's one of the few instances where these things do fit you yeah. know and i think you can also go back and read the unrevised versions and they feel just as legitimate to me. Mm. Possibly because I read them first. I don't know. I don't think I'll ever forgive him for rewriting Elric's Clobber for the 60th anniversary <laughs> edition of The Dream and City. But everything else I can forgive yes. him for. You know, there, there are little silly little things like um, Scout Leader Reagan being rebadged Scout Leader Egan in the American edition of Warlord of the Air, which cre- crept over into a Grafton edition mm. that I had. I think I put it in a tiny library down the road. There's a tiny library down the road. So yeah. I went and stuck it in there, hoping, hoping that some 13-year-old kid will pick it up because they <laughs> like the Melvin airship cover on the front. And I, th- I think they're just as legitimate when you go back and reread them. But strangely, you just mentioned Tolkien, and Tolkien's never too far away when we're talking about Markup for one reason or another. But uh, I was thinking about that the other day. There's a lot of people really upset, for example, about Rings of Power. And... Okay, Mithril's elf juice. I'm not quite. <laughs> I'm not quite on board with that. But most of the rest of it, yeah, fine, whatever. But Moorcock was doing, in some ways, what Tolkien was doing, which is writing reams and reams and reams and reams of stuff. Some of which was contradictory. Some of which was complementary. Some of which was reinventing things. The difference between Tolkien and Moorcock was Moorcock published everything he wrote. <laughs> Every single thing he wrote, he published. So it's all there. Yeah. Whereas with Tolkien, oh, there's no point worrying about canon with Tolkien, is there? Because if you read the um, History of Middle-Earth volumes, I think I had one, was it The Treason of Isengard? I can't remember which one it was. I remember reading it back in the early 90s when they came out. And Strider was originally a hobbit called Trotter. Yeah, yeah. You know, so let's not worry too much about the Rings of Power when there is so much Tolkien content out there which is contradictory. yeah. And yeah, I I think he, even like the stuff in the Silmarillion, which contradicts the stuff in Lord of the Rings. I mean, mm. Silmarillion was posthumous, mm. and and all the the history of Middle Earth, the history of Lord of the Rings, was all published posthumously. So you probably you could probably lay your hands on everything he wrote, but mm. you know it was all the working drafts. But mm. but you know it all done for very different reasons because he was sort of 
essentially writing it for his own amusement. Hmm. And whereas Moorcock was, you know, publishing magazines and just wanted to get, you know, this this stuff out and make a living. Hmm. You know what, since we've mentioned the Rings of Power, maybe we should have five minutes on the Rings of Power. One oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'll, I'll talk you know, about elves all day. Seems we're winging it, right? Yeah. So the Rings of Power, people can now find out whether we're part of the work mob or are <laughs> or, or Tolkien purists. <laughs> but it's funny, and I think a lot of people are experiencing the same thing. I've been watching Rings of Power in parallel with House of the Dragon, and... I think what I am doing is resisting the urge to compare them because it's, you know, they're both fantasies, but they are like apples and oranges, really. But I didn't find myself having a massive emotional connection to Rings of Power until it, it really kind of got going. And I think a lot of a lot of people's um, keystone episode was the big scrap where the Numenarians come and have fights with orcs. Mm. And I struggled with that a little bit because I was actually to some extent, sympathetic to the orcs. <laughs> I think I was, I was more sympathetic to the orcs than anybody else. But, uh, yeah, but, they're making the orcs more sympathetic, right? Yeah. They're, they're at least talking about, well, they're, you know, they're individuals. Yeah, absolutely. And the and I, I did find it amusing that, what did they call the fallen elf who was in charge of the orcs? Oh, Adar or Adar. Adar, Adar, Adar yeah. Which means father, I believe. Yeah. I did, I did love that that was Benjamin Stark. And he didn't look that dissimilar from when he turned up as undead Benjamin Stark in Game of Thrones. That guy must, yeah, I mean, it's, it's great for him. He must make a few quid out of out getting these getting these roles. But I, I kind of really appreciated the fact that they cast him because I think he's great. But well, he's going to do double the business at conventions now. Absolutely, yeah. Good luck to him on that as well. But I, I did, I have found it uh, a little bit. I mean, it looks glorious. Obviously, yeah. it looks super lush and expensive, and that's fine. I, I do sometimes think I wish they'd had another pass at the scripts just to talk about some of the dialogue. And I, I did, I did enjoy actually, and even despite myself, I felt quite smug about the stranger in the meteorite because I thought I, I had an inkling that it was one of the Astari at the very least when he fell from the sky and the fact that he was spoilers people the fact that he was <laughs> interacting with the hobbits from the moment he landed would yeah. explain gandalf's fondness for hobbits and it all yeah. worked so when that i shouldn't have done but when that played out at the end and he had the confrontation with the three followers of, of, of sauron and and gave him the big fuck off pill with his powers I did do a little fist bump, <laughs> sorry, a fist pump in the air, and, and that's that's the point where I, I really felt fully engaged with it emotionally for the first time was that little yeah. fist pump. Yeah. You know. So while you tell me about your take on Rings of Power, um, I'm just going to open up a, a wild beer company, Millionaire Milk Stout. I um, yeah, no, I mean, I'm 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 very uh, easy to please um with uh with tv and uh if if i'm if i'm in you know halfway through the second episode i'm probably going to be in the whole way through mm. um i'm i'm a little bit sort of surprised but it, it seemed so obvious that we were meant to think he was gandalf mm -hmm. that i was expecting them to do something different but if they'd done something different i think you know, I would have been slightly disappointed because he's so obvious. Yeah. I, I, you know, I mean, they've not said it yet, but it just feels like it's got to be Gandalf, you know, with the hobbits and he looks like him and he sort of acts like him. I can't see him being Saruman. Um, yeah. 
I guess he could, he could be one of the blue wizards because he's going over to the going east, east and, and yeah. that's the only thing we know about them. Yeah. Um, I can't, yeah, I can't see him being Saruman. Uh, yeah. but, um, I thought for a moment maybe Radagast. Um, yeah. But then uh, his final line is, if in doubt, follow your nose. And that cements it, doesn't it, really? Yeah. Unless they're going for some kind of ridiculous swerve in season two. And yeah. the, the only swerve I would accept is if it's Tom Bombadil. Well, well, yeah, I mean, I would love to see Tom Bombadil because if you can pull that off, if you mm. can do a ridiculous character like that, um, yeah, I, yeah I, it would make me so happy because, uh, yeah. you know, the one character who's never adapted, uh, you know, uh, but I think Tom Tom is meant to have been there from the very beginning. I yeah, think. that's right. I, I, yeah, I don't know how much we're supposed to be looking back at the, the law. I, I had a quick look in uh, my Tolkien bestiary uh, when this all started and it said, well, the, the wizards ah. came over uh, from the West on a boat in the third age. Yeah. Um, but I've since found out, and this is something I, I didn't realize is that uh, the Tolkien bestiary, which is a book I had in the eighties uh, by David day. Yeah. Um, he made up loads of that stuff. <laughs> So I can't trust okay. I can't trust anything in the talking bestiary. Um, right. So actually the Astari coming to Middle Earth in the Third Age was an invention of David Day. I, I don't know. It's mm. it's in that book. All right. Because well, because I, I tried to read the Silmarillion and failed. Mm. Uh so, so the you know, the the thing I always turned to was that book because the art's so beautiful in it. Yeah. Um Oh, it's got all but, that beautiful Ian Miller out, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ian Miller. There's some John Blanche stuff. Yeah, some, some pre pre games or or pre Warhammer John Blanche. Yeah, uh, and they they get the same artists, like the same artist does all the elf stuff, and then the same artist, like Ian Miller, does all the dwarf stuff and all the dragon stuff, and they kind of parcel it out and the, blanking on the name of the guy that did the elves. Of course, the Wood Elf illustrations yeah. are beautiful. Aren't yeah. They? Yeah, and the, all the mm. Hobbit stuff is just incredible. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't know how much we can trust uh, what's in that book. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I can't imagine you would make something like that up. But uh, I mean, you know, I like, I like the idea of them falling from the sky rather than coming over on a boat. Yes, yeah. yeah, it's quite nice that. Why not? <laughs> yeah, that that book is wonderful. I've got that on a shelf somewhere, and I used to have it in the eighties, then lost it, and I managed to pick up a really nice hardcover with the with the dust cover. A few yeah. years ago, again off eBay, but I think it went on the shelf, and I've never actually looked at it. I'm going to, have to pull that off the shelf. I think, yeah. give that a good look because it is a beautiful book. Yeah, yeah. I, obviously, you know, it's Gandalf. He's not going to be Tom Bombadil, but I would because Tom Bombadil was there and remembers the first Acorns. He's got to be there somewhere. He's got to be around, yeah. and he's there to be had, isn't he? Oh, yeah. I wonder. I wonder if the stories that they actually have the rights to includes Tom Bombadil. Well, that's the big surprising thing. When I first heard about this, it's like, oh, it's going to be the Silmarillion, and they mm. don't have the rights to the Silmarillion. So, mm. yeah, all the all the sort of Beren and Luthien stuff and all the Morgoth stuff is yeah. not going to be seen. So it's all Second Age, and it's all the stuff that was um, just just basically listed in the appendices, I guess. So yeah. you can play around with it, I suppose. Um, yeah. I, you know, I've, I've been enjoying it. You know, I think of anyone of my uh, vintage, you see Lenny Henry, and that's a thumbs up because, yeah. you know, for Absolutely. our generation, he, he gets a lifetime pass from me. And he was great in it, you know. Um, yeah, he was. He was very good. Um, I mean, spo- Spoiler alert, not in season two. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm not entirely convinced by the Cod Irish accent. 
But that aside... Yeah, weird choice. Yeah, that aside, I, I thought he was really, really good in it. He's got gravitas now, hasn't he? Yeah. He's got real yeah. He's got real presence and real gravitas. And, I mean, God, the last time I seem to remember... I know I saw him acting in a Doctor Who episode. Um, but probably the last time I saw him acting before that was playing a, a pirate DJ in the 80s in a sitcom. <laughs> <laughs> Delbert oh. Wilkins. Delbert yeah, Wilkins. I'm, yeah, I'm surprised he didn't do the Dudley, uh, the proper Dudley accent, because like uh, the the Hobbits do tend to be a bit of West Country. Uh, yes. In in later years, but I guess they wanted to just do something different. I love the look of them. Yeah. They had just a slight sort of that slightly sort of fairy look. Yeah, brilliant. You know, isn't it? the aircon yeah, and the just, hair, all that yeah. stuff. Yeah. Sort of taking it, taking them back to what they were originally thought to yeah. be. You know. Yeah. Um. I, I guess it's cool to see Numenor, you know, mm. and that sort yeah. of uh, Greek Greco-Roman stuff. Yeah. Um, I mean, my my only, I, I'm I'm so easily pleased. I really am. Um, my the only thing I thought was stupid and ridiculous was I think the end the end of the seventh episode where it's just, I mean, the Southlands. Oh, as, a, as a title on it, burst into flame to, yeah. to, to Mordor. I mean, that's like just camp like you just didn't need it it's it's not only camp it's like eat this cud and understand where we're going and what we're talking about for all you thick fuckers <laughs> let's spell it out for you if you're not worked out by that point yeah, yeah. i mean i i had to have it pointed out to me that the southlands were mordor in like the first episode because i was yeah. like oh yeah it's just i, I guess it's sort of gondor area I, yeah because you never quite work out either kept showing you the map it's like what's vaguely in that general direction but yeah. like um yeah there's a there's a guy on youtube called um cory olson i believe he uh, he he teaches Tolkien at an American university and he does like these long length, lengthy YouTube uh, breakdowns of each episode. And mm. he's like, and, Oh, and of course the Southlands, this is what will become Mordor obviously. And I'm like, Oh, what's that? Was that obvious? Yeah. Okay, yeah. And like, obviously later on, it becomes very obvious, you know, yeah. but uh, I, I like all that. I, I love the reveal of Mount Doom. I love the special effects. I love the, the eruption, the ash, all mm-hmm. that stuff. I think Marfid Clark is brilliant in anything that she's in. Have you seen St. Maud? I haven't, no. I've never seen her in anything other she than She did this. a film called St. Maud about 18 months, two years ago, about a nurse who goes to provide living care for a once famous actress and dancer who has a terminal illness. And there are a few other characters pop up, pop up in it, but for the la- for the most part, it's it's a, it could be a stage play with two actors. She is absolutely fantastic in it. What a what a great film! Thoroughly recommend anybody watch Saint Maud with Moffat Clark. It's wonderful, brilliant, brilliant film, and quite dark and twisted as well. Yeah. So yeah, well, that's Rings of Power put to bed, <laughs> isn't it? And you've been listening to Rings of Power cast. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but if if the dirt if the dirt get Bombadil in there at some point in the in the five seasons that they're planning, then I will condemn it. Then I will do uh, a clickbait YouTube show that that demolishes it and yeah, you, and try and earn some of those YouTube dollars. Yeah, you get you get a <laughs> screenshot of one of the actors and make them have red eyes. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you know, make their mouth gape open. Yeah, yeah, just put it, put him in the background, put him in one scene. You mm-hmm. know, I think a little bit of Tom goes a long way. Yeah, absolutely. Even hint at him. Even yeah. have him just off screen. And something weird happening that can only be attributed to to, to Bombadil, you know. I'd, I'd be all over that like a rush. I would love it. But then I've always been a Bombadil fan. 
But interestingly, you know, obviously we've got this big Rings of Power series. We've got House of the Dragon going gangbusters, as is the expression, on HBO Max and and doing very well and, you know, continuing to rip off the visual identity of Elric and the Dragon Isle and everything else. Uh, the guy who grew up to have the scar and the eye patch with the long white hair. Uh, that guy, yeah, Coon, for me. But too late. Too late. Already been done. So that's that's all going well. But, of course, now we've got this news about... The Apple TV Plus, David Goya helmed Eternal Champion TV show. Good lord! Okay, well I've not heard about that. Oh, so. I'd, I'd heard about the Hawk, Hawk Moon show. Um... Right. Well, David Goya interviewed in Variety, talking about what he's got on, and essentially, one of the things he's working on that's in pre-development for Apple TV Plus is an Eternal Champion TV series. Right. being done by the people who did the Foundation series and Sandman for Netflix. And in an interview, uh, sorry, not an interview, in a post on Facebook, Moorcock explained that he's been in negotiations about this for quite a lengthy period of time, and the BBC guys have handed back their option on History of the Rune stuff. Right, okay. So three so years of development ever- come to nothing. It's it's everything. It's, it's it's a whole. It's everything that was ever published in the United States by the White Wolf publishers. So all of the Eternal Champion, but no Michael Caine. I don't know. Michael Caine has been kind of retrospectively branded uh, an aspect of the Eternal Champion, but that's yeah. weak. Um, no dances at the end of time, and no another one. I can't remember. But anyway, but it does include Von Beck. Yeah, it includes Hartman. Includes Elric. Includes Coram. It includes Ilion of Garathorm, you know. So in, interesting, interesting news. Probably another two or three years of development. But if anybody's going to get something to to series and get it on Apple TV Plus, it's probably David S. Goya because he just seems to have carte blanche to do what whatever the hell he wants. So mm, interesting times. I, I mean, the, yeah, the mind boggles because, like, with all that material. You could just go crazy, mm. you know, with you know not having to necessarily adapt every book, but yeah. adapt aspects and and to be able to interweave these these worlds. I mean, I mean that's going to be another expensive uh, prospect. Yeah, um, I think mean, you know when I heard it. about the, the the BBC doing Hawkmoon, it's like are they going to be able to do mm. Hawkmoon? You know the things that are in the Hawkmoon books. There's there's a lot. Mm. There's a lot. Yeah. But yeah. uh, I did wonder about the the BBC Room Stuff series, but I think if if you're going to do something that has a cute hard edged parody of the worst British tendencies, is a British broadcaster the best one to do it? I, I, I don't know. The problem with Apple TV Plus and my problem with the Foundation series was that it was style over substance. And that's my fear of it. It'll take the central trappings of it, but it'll lose the bite. Mm. You know? And also with it being an eternal champion TV show, what what's what's the in gonna be? Is it gonna be it's gonna be John Dacre in New York, probably. It's gonna be American. An American producer, an American TV show for an American streamer. John Dacre is gonna be American. 
and that instantly starts to make my shit itch <laughs> before I even get anywhere with it. But you know, I'll I'll, uh, I'll I'll hold up any potential paranoia or criticism because we've always got the books, so it doesn't. Sure, matter, yeah, does it? yeah. I mean, and Goy's had a lot to do with Sandman over the years. I I, I, produ- I think he's a producer on the Netflix show, right? Or is, something yeah. to do with it. Yeah. Um, I mean, and and I love Sandman. Like that was one of the key texts of of my early twenties. I was a mm. proper game and bore back then, um, mm. and I'm astonished that it eventually got made. And I'm astonished that he got to make the version that he is obviously wanting to make. And you know, yeah. it's not this bastardized version, but at the same time, it's it's a nicer kind of gentler Sandman, and it's not as nasty, mm. and it's not as disturbing as those early comics and yeah. you know maybe people just wouldn't want to see that stuff i, I was dreading uh episode five mm. um the the 24 hours i was like thinking the, the, i think that's genuinely one of the most disturbing things i've ever read and i sort of put putting off watching it like, can i even handle this you know mm. and at the end of the day it was it was actually it was it, it wasn't the same thing and i think i think if you'd made that people would have just turned off in droves, you know. Um I think if you've got an actor the quality of David Fewless anchor in that, then it's a good start. Yeah. It's a good start. David Fewless was great in that. And you're right, actually, they did Netflix Sandman. They didn't transpose any of it unnecessarily to America. So, you know, maybe there is maybe there is hope for all of this. Yeah. I hope so. I hope so. Yeah, that amount of that amount of stories and yeah, you know those uh, the amount of characters you could you could just take the absolute best of each one and mm. you know blend stuff together. You know, obviously, Elric was not you know conceived as a as a great saga. Elric was yeah. conceived as a you know these very very short episodic you know mm. pulpy stories originally, and you yeah. could you could either do that or you could do the kind of lengthy sort of saga version of it mm. i think my preference probably would have been to have interlinked series but if they have to do an eternal champion series and, and no one character really gets as much due and exposure and development as would like it's still it's still as, as, as a, a visual treat for the senses i'm sure seeing elric wielding stormbringer at the end of the world and blowing the horn of fate if they can pull yeah. that off you know even if i'm cynical about it i'll still get a kick out of it of course yeah, yeah. But going back a little bit, you mentioned that edition of White Dwarf and the Thrud the Barbarian strip. It just popped into my head. And I suppose for for people who weren't gamers or didn't listen, I didn't read White Dwarf, what was Thrud the Barbarian? It was a, a an amusing parody strip about a barbarian by Carl Critchlow that was one page. And what, what were the other ones? There was a Traveller strip, wasn't there? Was- there? The Travelers by Mark Harrison. Yeah, it went on to do like a lot of uh, 2000 AD stuff, I think. Yeah, um, and, and there was uh, Gobbledygook. Gobbledygook by Bill. Yeah, yeah, I loved Gobbledygook. Yeah, but one of my favourite things there was there was not only um, Eric of Melnia Boney or M- Boney Malone. Boney Maloney. Yeah. Boney Maloney. There was Cronum and the Simpleton. <laughs> <laughs> Which oh, at one point Thrud cleaves him from the head down to his groin, and the next time you see Cronin the Simpleton is still doing flexy muscle poses. It's just it's just got big obvious stitches. 
all the way down his body. Uh, yeah, if anybody, if 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 you like parody, uh, fantasy barbarian comedy strips, try and seek out the Thread the Barbarian collected strips because they're uh, they're hugely entertaining. When I was fifteen, that was the most uh, sophisticated. Um, erudite humour I'd ever yeah. encountered. I thought it was brilliant. I mean, look, looking back, some of it's rather broad, but, yeah. uh, you know, fantastically drawn. And, yeah, Carl Critchlow went on to do um, uh, 2000 AD stuff as well. Yeah, and he went on to do full-painted artwork yeah. as well and covers yeah. and everything, didn't he? He was very, very talented. I, I did at one point think he was jumping, like a couple of others did, on the trail that Sam and Bisley laid. Yeah, absolutely. In terms of like style and airbrushing and all that business. Yeah. But still hugely impressive stuff. It, there was the demand for it. Yeah, absolutely. And and Bisley took forever to do anything. So yeah. I can understand why they might have looked looked elsewhere. Yeah. But I, I can remember sitting in my bedroom with that that one. I think it's like a magnificent seven type thing, even to the point where it's Mexican villagers <laughs> that they're trying to help out. And Cronin yeah. and the Simpleton is one of them. And uh, he's, he's flexing his muscles with his with his stitched up gash all the way down his body. I just remember sitting there howling all after it for ages. But anyway, back to Mocock and art. Mocock art. <laughs> I, I mean, remember. See, w- wigging it's fine. <laughs> but go back to Mocock art. So those striking covers you talked about the uh, the Elric novels of the Grantham covers. Michael Whelan, of course. Yeah. Michael Whelan did those really, really super striking covers where Elric was generally underdressed. I think you, you get a variety of styles for Elric. One of my favorite Elric paintings or cover paintings, which will be controversial, is the Jack Garn cover to the sixties Ace Pocketbook edition. Oh, I of Stormbringer. Yeah, I, I think I've got that. When we first talked about this, I made a PDF of some yep. examples. It's right here. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the reason I love this so much is because this was one of my first two Mococks given to me by Pops, both yeah. Ace Pocketbook editions. This one, Stormbringer, the other one being Warlord of the Air, late 60s edition of Warlord of the Air. Yeah. And I absolutely adore this cover. It's generally people's least favourite take on Elric. And when Barry Windsor Smith was first asked to do Elric for a Conan the Barbarian or Savage Sword of Conan strip, he didn't have any frame of reference for Elric. He'd never read Michael Moorcock, so somebody gave him a copy of this book. Yeah. And Moorcock was gutted. <laughs> <laughs> because, and yeah, we'll, we'll try and pop uh, an image of this in the video, and I'll put it in the show notes, but how do you describe this cover? Well, I really love I really love kind of a sixties artistic um interpretation of I assume some kind of castle or maybe even the dreaming city behind him. Yeah. But Elric is wearing what looks to be a very nice bottle green jacket with bottle green trues and a huge pair of thigh length black kinky boots. <laughs> He's also it's either kinky boots or waders. And he's wearing a red cloak, and he's got a pointy wizard's hat. Yeah, and I love it. And he's not unlike Coram in this picture, is he? That's right. Yeah, this could this could easily have been Coram, couldn't it? Yeah. And I absolutely adore it because it's just one of my first. But I do understand why it's a controversial choice. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So your favorite Elric cover art? Um... Can you pin it down? 
I well, yeah, I can, and and I think one of the first things we ever spoke about when when we met at Thought Bubble, um, we talked about the Michael Whelan books, mm. which they they were the sort of main uh, books that I had growing up, and the the ones I've actually got now. I've dug out all my Moorcock books, so you know, there's the bane of the bastard. Yes. But this is my absolute yep. favorite. That's such an atmospheric. Uh, badass yeah oh like and uh, you know the coming out of the mist um yeah. it's just beautiful i mean i think we so list, so a... listeners we're talking sailor on the seas of it the grafton stroke panther or the door edition um just so people know what we're on about <laughs> oh yeah i should have i should have said shouldn't i <laughs> yeah. um yeah sailor on the seas of it i just think that's such a phenomenal uh image i think Whelan. i loved him at the time um and so, like some of the more sort of uh, stylized, um, uh, sort of more sort of psychedelic the, the Bob Haberfield mm. covers, I I did not like at that age. I wanted uh, everything to look dead realistic. Yeah. And obviously, the, these are the closest thing you have to sort of eighties Dungeons and Dragons, mm. and you know a little bit like some of the Games Workshop stuff. Um, I used to, unfortunately, I don't have it anymore, but I used to have an, an art book of Michael Whelan. It was called Wonder Worlds or Wonder Works or something like that. And Moorcock wrote uh, an introduction. He had different, he had a section on sci-fi, had a section on fantasy, a section on horror, maybe. Yeah. Uh, and the section on fantasy was written by Moorcock. And, ah. and, and Moorcock, just very effusive in his praise. But one thing I that, that sticks out that I... I vividly remember he says um, Whelan gives Elric muscles mm. um, in a market that demands muscles. Yeah. Uh, my hero is something of a weakling. Um, so I, I think when people say, uh, you know, the Geralt of Rivia as played by Henry Cavill is a, is a, an Elric ripoff. I mean, he he kind of looks like Henry Cavill in some of these paintings. He's mm. proper, he's, he's brick shit house. Yeah. Level. Both, isn't he? Um, whereas some of some of the other artists do kind of lean into the kind of more rangy string bean uh qualities of him. Yeah. Um but yeah, yeah, I mean I absolutely love them. Uh, the the very first Elric book I read, which was the Elric Malnibene from uh the library in Gloucester, it was by an artist called Lawrence Cutting, and it's this weird photographic cover and i'll i'll send you a, a copy if you if you don't know the one i mean but i, I guess it's elric and yakun but um it looks kind of like a photograph of a statue maybe in like yes uh it's an arrow negative. book it's an arrow published book is, yeah. version isn't it yeah. yeah um my mate yaki sent me that a couple of years ago um as part of a birthday present yeah it's very it's very odd it's um like a classical statue isn't it? Yeah. Um, and, which is a, a strange choice. I was going to say, yeah, so Whelan, yeah, definitely buff Elric, definitely scantily clad Elric as well. Always got his thighs out. Very classic fantasy cover. Nevertheless, really cool. And that edition of Sailor on the Seas Affair is the first Mocock book I ever bought myself right. with my pocket money. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, not only was I blown away by the art, but I was blown away by the story as well. Mm. But as, as well as that... Um, Arrow Books Edition, there's um, Sailor on the Seas Affair and Elric of Melnibone, Melnibone. Um, also, later Arrow Editions, I think, were 
I think the Elric of Melnibonair one, he looks like he's do, pulling the blue steel um, pose from Zoolander. Mm. And the Sailor on the Seas of Fate one, or is it Steeler of Souls? I can't remember. Again, he's bright blue and looking a bit kind of wild-eyed, like he's been up for a few days or something. <laughs> not Interesting covers, not, not necessarily favourites, but interesting interpretations. I mean, again, this is you might want to cut this out because this is just solely based on my memory. But I believe in that um, Michael Whelan book, uh, another thing that uh, Moorcock wrote was he'd had a lot of depictions of Elric that he didn't like. Mm. Um, And he said the very first book that Elric appeared on, I mean, again, I'm thinking back 30 years and paraphrasing. Yeah. He said the artist clearly didn't know what an albino was, and he looked it up in a dictionary. And there were some American dictionaries that defined an albino as a, a black man, but with no colouring. So Moorcock was saying that there is one Elwick book where he's a black man, right? Um, and I've I've tried to find that, and I've looked around, and I've, the nearest thing I can find is um, there's a Brian Lewis cover. Uh, on science fantasy number 47 that's got on the dreaming city uh by moorcock in it and there's a sort there is a fantasy warrior who may be maybe you could see him as having dark skin but he's mm. not necessarily elric but it's a crazy you know he's got a green cloak and a and a sort of um che- checkerboard uh tunic yeah um Maybe that's the one he meant. I mean, maybe he wasn't even remembering it right because obviously this is this is from the depths of the sixties, and he was obviously yeah. writing the, the Michael Whelan book in like the early eighties, I guess. Mm. Um, but I've never I've never quite been able to track that down. So who who knows? And yeah, it's, it's a shame that. I don't have the the Whelan book anymore. It's interesting because what one of the RPGs, it might be one of the Mo- Mongoose Elric RPG books, has got. I think it's a pencil art illustration of Elric on one of the first pages, and he has African features. Right. But I love it. I think it's really, really beautiful. But I've never, I don't think I've ever seen anything else. I think probably the, the wildest and most unusual Elric I've ever seen is actually in the Stormbringer third edition games workshop one where you've got the colour plates, and there's one with a spiky white mullet who looks like Rob Alford in, yeah. in black armour. Uh, yeah, and uh, I remember the eighties thinking that was really cool when I was a metal fan. I, I, <laughs> I look at it now and think, nah, nah, that didn't really work for me. <laughs> yeah, that had a lot of um, uh, Frank Brunner art, yeah. which I I thought that was again. He looks a lot, you know, he's dressed a lot like the Michael Whelan stuff, but he's a little bit more stringy. Yeah, uh, and that I I felt they they were quite sort of defining. Um, and and with his name being Brunner, like yeah, I, I feel there's there's there's, there's some gotta, weird gotta be a connection there, hasn't there? Yeah, there's some weird nomenclature stuff because uh, when um, I think in the the Imagine magazine he talks about James Cawthorn, and James Cawthorn was always a bit of a mystery figure. Yeah, uh, but then he talks about James Colvin being one of his pseudonyms, and it's yeah. like, oh, is so is is Cawthorn one of his pseudonyms as well? Because you know, I I'd read about this art, artist Cawthorn, but I've never seen any of his work. And obviously, yeah. you know, at this late stage, you can you can find everything the man ever drew. But at the time, you just read the name in a book and think, oh, was was he 
was he drawing as well as writing? Mm. You know, the, the, these these little connections and JC as well with Jerry O'Connell and yeah. Jerry Cornelius. And that's what it was credited as for co-writing The Distant Sons. There's a really, really terrific book, art book of Cawthorn's art came out in the last couple of years that's um, co-written along with John Davey of Jade Design by uh, Cawthorn's sister. Right. And uh, thoroughly recommend that. It's not only not only has it got a, a lot of really fantastic Cawthorn art, Elric art, various other things as well, things like Doc Savage, and yeah. lots and lots of different things. But it's also got a ton of champion sketches that were never used anywhere and were basically seen largely for the first time in that book. And of course, Jay Design also did the um, hardcover slip cased Cawthorn Stormbringer, right. with, with all of the art he did for a Stormbringer adaptation. Which is all really fantastic, and of course he did the talking about Elric a lot, but he did the duel in the skull for yeah. um, Savoy as well, which is um, really cool. I'm not; it doesn't really work as a comic, no. But the individual panels of art are really cool. Yeah, it's more like an illustrated book, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, he's he's absolutely fascinating, and I think any any fan that's not like sort those out, I I feel like they're essential just because he. He clearly knew Moorcock so well. Moorcock's yeah. spoken about him in interviews. And, you know, the I mean, it's interesting to contrast the uh, the American Hawkmoon comics of Raphael Kayanan, mm. uh first comics yeah. um, editions with the Cawthorn ones. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's just such a, a, a strange sort of surreal vibe to Cawthorn. Yeah. I mean, as an example, in the in the Raphael Kayanan, uh, edition where you know some of it's fantastic some of it's not great i think i think when he's either inking himself or there's a particular inkers they're fantastic but so, some of them aren't quite so good but when he's drawing like the slaves of grand Bretagne, mm. they they look like girls in a motley crew video you know yeah. it's like very much like an american sort of heavy metal you know yeah. whereas the the you know when you see that in the cawthorn they really do look kind of crushed and yeah. you know you you really kind of get the sense of the horror of of, of the, the dark empire mm. um and there's so 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 many sort of strange things going on in the background in in mm. those in those books um and the time it must have taken him to do like you know all in kind of pen and ink and like cross hatching all this detail in the architecture yeah um it's it's it's, it's fascinating he, he just seems like a a, a one-off that guy mm. Yeah, there's there's nothing else quite like it. And in in terms of the level of detail, when you when you get into things like battle scenes mm. as well, I mean, he, he must have he must have laboured over those boards for well, I don't know how long. I'm not an artist, so I don't know how long these things take. But it must have took him a while. Just the incredible amount of detail. Yeah. Mm. You mentioned first comics as well, of course. And um, I've got to confess, whilst I do enjoy comics, and I'll consider myself a comic fan. I'm always a little bit more distant from them when they're um, adaptations of of things that I really, really love. And whilst I do, I appreciate things like the Cawthon, but, you know, as you said, the more like abridged, um, illustrated stories. In in terms of the main Eternal Champion adaptations by people like First Comics, and, and okay, when they've slipped into Marvel as well, I've never been entirely satisfied by them and sometimes i do really appreciate the psychedelic nature of some of the p greg russell stuff and how colorful and wacky it looks but there's just 
always something ever so slightly goofy about it, yeah. which kind of puts me off a little bit. And then at the opposite end of the scale, you've got the Julian Blondell um, comics, now released as graphic novels, where the artwork is absolutely exquisite, but it goes to the opposite end of the scale and loses all of the psychedelic weirdness and just becomes yeah. grim and gothic. Yeah. And I'd really love a balance between those two things. Yeah. But I'm not sure it exists currently. Yeah, well, I, I'm I, I a big Mike uh, Minola fan, and mm. the the Corum books, the the he did the Knight of the Swords, and I think he might have done the first two or three issues of uh, Queen of the Swords. Mm. I think he's and and his style completely changed. If you know him from Hellboy in the eighties, he was like drawing Superman and Batman, and he had a much different style i mean i think mm. he hates that style but the, when he was working on corum there's something he i think he captures some of the weirdness i mm. mean I, th- I think knight of the swords is clearly the best corum book and mm. uh i i think the ideas in it are so amazing and obviously i was i was sort of pre-sold on that but mm. I, they're they're absolutely wonderful and i think i heard a an interview with uh Moorcock recently where he spoke very very highly of uh Minola mm. um but but yeah I mean I, I you you sometimes adapting things that just cannot be adapted I, yeah. I forget who did Sailor on the Seas of Fate but like you should you should never try and draw the four who are one because it just doesn't work visually yeah. and if they were meant to make that into a film you'd be on a hide into nothing because there's nothing that can, you know, get across the the sort of insanity of what's on the page and what it, the images that creates in your mind. It it's it, yeah, the, those things do tend to look kind of goofy and, yeah. and just just a, a bit weird, but but not kind of capturing the horror and not capturing the yeah, absolute psychedelic madness of of some mm-hmm. of that stuff. So, I mean, I think if you if you were to ever you know down the line you were to ever ad- adapt some of these things. They'd, they'd probably they probably take a, a Marvel approach where mm. you use the original stories as a jumping off point to kind of tie some of those things together and make a something that works as a film or works as a TV series rather mm. than just kind of do a straight adaptation. But mm. uh, I mean, what what do I know? You know, I'm not I'm I'm not a, a, a writer or anything like that. But it's uh, yeah, it's it's tricky. Uh, adaptations always tricky because you're always going to disappoint people who want to exactly see what they read in a book and yeah. that's impossible, you know. Yeah. I mean, the bottom line is and and I know what I like. <laughs> I don't know much, but I know what I like. Yeah. And, uh, and, that, and that's at the end of the day, that's all you can talk about. We've never made any claims for this being an academic podcast. <laughs> it's, it's, it's all a game of opinions. But yeah, uh, uh, that Sailor on the Seas of Fate adaptation you mentioned the the far horror one bit, no, it just doesn't work at all. Well, no, but, no artist could do that. But I, I do appreciate the fact that it will bring people into Moorcock's worlds who haven't been exposed to them before. And, of course, there are various other Moorcock comics as well. There was the Multiverse comic, wasn't yeah. there, with the John Ridgway art and the Walter Simonson art. And yeah. Who did the other art? I can't remember off the top of my head. That ran for 12 issues. That was interesting. Yeah, an interesting run. And again, I prefer that kind of thing because they're original stories. So you had, you know, the metatemporal detective in there. You had an original Elric story 
which I think is in medieval England. Yeah, yeah. And you had the um, Walter Simonson drawn story, Moonbeams and Roses, which pulls in not only Von Beck, but the Pirates of the Second Ether and the Chaos Engineers and Elements from Blood and Fabulous Harbours. And it's been a while since I've read it, but I remember reading it at the time thinking, I ain't got a fucking clue what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> I got a clue what's going on. Here. What's this all about? Or I probably should revisit that. And then he's he's done various other bits and pieces. He's done an Elric prequel called Making of a Sorcerer. Yeah. So there's so much, so much stuff out there. So if you if you're into comics and you're just into in, interpretations of Moorcock, you're spoiled for choice. Yeah. Absolutely spoiled for choice. You know, and it's it's a shame in a way that whilst you've got you've got the interpretations in comics, you've got you know the um, the role playing games, which added a lot of material and a lot of background care to your people like Lawrence Whitaker and Gareth Hanrahan, who kind of fleshed out you know details of the worlds. But yeah, that that additional step into the visual medium is still is still out there and still waiting to happen. We discussed the Apple TV show. Maybe there'll be a some kind of computer game or something at some point. That's a surprise that there's never really been anything. Yeah. When you, you know, when you consider, you know, all of the open world role playing games out there, why not have Tragic Millennium Europe as a setting for that? You know, yeah. G- give yeah. me, give me a, a Tragic Millennium Europe Skyrim mod immediately, and I'll be all over it. <laughs> be all over it. Uh, although somebody, uh, there's uh, somebody out there who's done a Stormbringer mod for Skyrim in terms of the sword. Right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we, we we need that. We need that full conversion mod. Yeah. Skyrim, don't we? I think one of the things Moorcock said in that interview in um, Imagine was uh, they were asking him about a film, and obviously this is 85. Yeah. And he was like, oh, you know, there's been some talks, but I think ultimately producers find it's easier to steal ideas than mm. pay for them. And I think mm. so many ideas have been stolen. Um, I, when I first uh, discovered Nemesis the Warlock in 2000 AD, I... I Actually, I read that before I read any more cop, but kind mm. of thinking back, there's there's so many parallels there. And, you know, like the the um, Nemesis, the Warlock uh, computer game on the Spectrum, mm. I remember sort of wielding the sword. And by that time, I'd read Elric and like, this feels very Elric. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, uh, Kev, Kevin O'Neill, isn't it? I, I mm-hmm. think I'd love to see some uh, Kevin O'Neill more oh. artwork. Oh, yeah. Imagine Kevin O'Neill's Londra. Oh, Good lord, that would be that would be a sight to behold. But yeah, Pat Mills definitely mined Moorcock for inspiration, which is interesting considering he's a little bit, a little bit um, snippy about Moorcock from time to time. Oh really? On Twitter, yeah, right. yeah, because Moorcock in the seventies when Pat Mills was Pat Mills and Des Skin, I think I think it was Des Skin were making action comic. The one with the infamous cover of the, the kids are okay with a, a kid with a chain wrapped yeah. around his fist yeah. booting, a, booting a copper in the first. So there was a, a lot of controversy about that. And at the time, Mocock was part of a, I think, a, a journalist's association. And Mocock was particularly vocal about not only Action Comic, but early 2000 AD. Yeah. And uh, he was very anti them. Uh, and he didn't have very nice things to say about anything that Pat Mills or John Wagner were writing. And whereas I think John Wagner just shrugs these kind of things off. Uh, I like John Wagner a lot. I've come across him a couple of times at um, 
not only Thought Bubble, but a, a sci-fi weekend, I think, that we've gone to on and off for a few years. Yeah. And he's a really interesting bloke to stand outside and have a roll up with and just have a chat. And I, I think to him, stuff like this, water for, water for ducks back. But I think Pat Mills has always seems to have rankled a little bit about that. Yeah. And he's not afraid of, of having a, a couple of snippy comments about Mocock. But at the end of the day, he certainly mined Mocock for, for plenty of ideas. Well, I think, Gra- I think Graham Morrison, too, has yeah. uh, made some snippy comments about Moorcock and Moorcock's made some snippy comments about Graham Morrison, which is, yeah. you know, I mean, obviously, there's a, there's a clear influence there and sometimes it's it's overt. And but there was, yeah, there was it's an this element... game, why can't they all get on? Yeah, why can't everybody get along? The, the, the Alan Moorcock axis against the, uh, the Grant Morrison evil seems to have been a thing on and off over the years, doesn't it? <laughs> So I think Moorcock has, has been quoted as saying that he thinks Gideon Stargrave is just uh, um, an out-and-out rip-off of Jerry Cornelius. Yeah. But on the other hand, he doesn't seem to have a problem with Luther Arkwright. So it's yeah, it, you know, it's all about yeah. all about personality and who you like and you don't like, yeah. isn't it? And recently, guy on Twitter, Joachim Boz, pointed out something from a book, a monograph about Frank Brunner, saying from the perspective of Frank, sorry, not Frank Brunner, John Brunner, the British science fiction author. Yeah. Um, and from his perspective, feeling that Moorcock and a lot of his compadres in the 60s uh, bullied him and right. had parties where they burned his books. You know what? Nobody's clean in the, in this war <laughs> of uh, of criticism and feeling like, you you know, somebody's been making hay on your dime. I think there's a, yeah. whenever it comes to exceptionally creative people, being snippy about each other seems to be par for the course. Yeah. So, having never read Gideon Stargrave, I don't really kind of have an opinion or an angle on it. Yeah, I, I've I've only sort of encountered it in sort of texts about comics. Um, my my impression was it was, you know, it made no bones about the fact that he was he was a a, a version of Jerry Cornelius. Yeah. You know, um, but you know, maybe I'm misremembering. The weird thing is. Moorcock went through a, a period of time where he was really, really delighted for people to um, collaborate and mm. create their own Jerry Cornelius stories. But it definitely appears to be the case that that works if you're M. John Harrison, J.G. Ballard, yeah. or or any of the New World's crew. So, who knows? Who knows? I mean, he let Guy Lawley do it for Saga yeah. and Man Elf. Yeah. So maybe it's just a case of if you drop Moorcock a line and say... Hello, Mike. I'm doing X. Do you mind? Maybe that's the deal. Maybe Grant didn't do that. I don't know. Yeah, well, you catch him on a good day. I feel like he's mellowed over the years because yeah. like, interviews I've I've read, um, he did seem to be an angry young man for a long time. And yeah. like every time I've heard like recent interviews, he just seems absolutely lovely, full of a sense of humour, yeah. like not taking himself too seriously and being full of praise for all these other artists who've either adapted his work or that he's worked with. Yeah. And then you see some of the interviews with him from the late 60s and early 70s where he's, he's wearing a crushed velvet green jacket and smoke, and holding a cigarette but never smoking it. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and with... with little curled up moustache yeah and he looks incredibly pretentious yeah and then a few years later uh joe banks you know, check joe banks joe banks sent me an mp4 of a bbc mocock documentary that's about 25 minutes long and 
he's being interviewed in the living room of the house he's living in with some other guy whose name I forget. And he looks like something from a Robert Crumb's comic strip. <laughs> it's absolutely amazing. He's, he's got his little pot belly. He's wearing a super tight turquoise T-shirt. He's got flares on. He's got his legs crossed. It's absolutely amazing. Yeah. He looks he looks just straight out of a Robert Crumb comic. And the guy he's living with is just kind of like sitting there staring a thousand yard stare staring into the carpet is brilliant. We'll have yeah. to find fa- find a screen grab of that. And if we ever do do a visual video version of this for YouTube, we'll we'll drop it in because it really is fantastic. But yeah, it's certainly the case that people mellow. Yeah. And you know, we all do, don't we? I was a massive dickhead when I was 25. <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't well, published about 14 books by the time I was 25. I was, I was still a massive dickhead. <laughs> Well, I, I mean, hopefully we mellow in some ways and we don't mellow in others. Yeah. But there's a, I, I remember seeing an interview with Moorcock and I don't know what it was from. It, it seems like it was something in the, on the BBC in like the late 60s. And they're asking him about the Beatles. And he's saying, well, they're, they're, they're as good as Brahms, but they're not better than Brahms. <laughs> uh, and I'm like, why would why would the BBC feel the need to ask a sci-fi mm. author what he thought mm. of the Beatles? But obviously the Beatles it was just kind of distorting culture all around them and like everyone had to have an opinion. And, and you know, this question of whether it could be comparable with classical music was obviously yeah. popping some people up the wrong way, you know. I so think that's just the same interview it. I'm thinking yeah. of where he's got the crushed velvet jacket on yeah. and the interviewer is wearing like round glasses and he's got a ball dead and wearing a black suit and just doesn't really seem to understand who he's talking to so he's just asking him oh oh, yeah you're an artist of sorts what do you think about i don't know some mothers do have them or whatever (laughs) it's it's, uh yeah it's really but it it is funny watching him in that interview yeah Yeah. i i remember um like when i'd only ever seen photographs of him and i'd only ever read interviews I had a completely different idea of what his voice would be and because he he slightly resembles Peter Grant, yeah. Led Zeppelin's manager. I always heard his quote in Peter Grant's voice. You know, Peter Grant's got this slightly, slightly sort of wheeling, you know, kind of, you know, doesn't quite fit. He's look as yeah. a gigantic bear of a man who'd yeah. like, Help, help people out out of windows by their by their ankles, and I imagine Moorcock had that same kind of voice. But then when you hear him on like you know the the Hawkwind albums, he, he turns up on it's this very erudite, yeah, you know, very sort of genteel voice that he's speaking with. Yeah, it's very very high, very mm. soft. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that gives like a, a really odd intellectual kind of quality to what he's saying, and you don't know whether it's an affectation. Or not, you know, and that's yeah. just 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 what it was like at the time. I know? mean, I, I guess I must have heard him when you know, not even realizing it's him on like um, Sonic Attack, yeah, and uh, the the wizard blew his horn on uh, I think Warrior at the Edge of Time yeah. by Hawkwind. Yeah. Uh, I remember s- sitting around um, uh, the one time I played AD and D, I should have been uh, revising for my exams, and we just everyone came around to my house and we played AD&D all day. We listened to Sonic Attack, Warrior at the Edge of Time, The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, and uh, I think Wind and Wuthering just yeah. all day. And my mum was so pissed off. It was like about 12 <laughs> hours, 12 hour AD&D game. Uh, and yeah. what what that has got to do with uh, the art of Moorcock, I don't know, but I, I felt compelled to tell you. Yeah. For the uninitiated AD&D, Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, <laughs> Which was in and of itself something of a misnomer, wasn't it? Because it wasn't really advanced 
first edition AD and D was just an absolute car crash of stuff that people only ever use ten percent of. Yeah, yeah, uh, it didn't make any sense. No. Uh, all different kind of sub systems. Yeah, uh, no core mechanic. Um, no. Yeah. Yeah, I One don't know thing, how anyone manage it. We're going to go off on a, a slight gaming tangent here, but it's the first time we've ever talked AD&D on this podcast. We've talked gaming on this podcast. Never talked AD&D on this podcast. Or D&D, I don't think, other than passing references to things like the Monster Manual and some of the RPG episodes. But one thing I really loved in AD&D that nobody would ever implement was weapon bonuses and penalties against specific types of armour. So if you if you had a mace, it might do less damage than a bastard sword, but it was brilliant against plate armor. Sure, yeah, yeah. Wasted, wasted subsystem that that I, I really, really liked because it it made weapons different and it gave mm. weapons some um, individuality. So, other than merp, where you were fine because I mean you had all the tables, so you had that kind of level of individuality for weapons, and if you used a morning star. I think there was, if you went according to the rules of probability and you were a warrior in MERP, and for, again, this is Middle-earth roleplay, which had a really strange, complicated system with critical charts and referring to charts to actually decide whether you'd hit anything, which, of course, AD&D First Edition did as well, mm. before they introduced, oh, God, let's not talk about Thacko. <laughs> let's just leave that there. But I do remember the uh, sitting and, and crunching the numbers, and if you had a warrior or you used a morning star. I think we figured out there was a one in 200 chance of you in, in, inflicting a, a, a lethal critical against yourself from a fumble. So if you if you were playing a warrior, you had a life expectancy of 200 attack rolls. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, on average. Yeah. Well, if you were lucky, you'd do, you'd do your, your crush critical and your piercing critical with a morning star, right? That's right. And if you're unlucky... You do them to yourself. <laughs> you do it think, to yourself. I think you fumble yeah. on a one to three with a morning star or something like that. I can't, can't remember exactly what it was. Although, interestingly, I could actually look it up because just behind me, which I found a while back. Sorry, I'm talking away from my microphone there. I found a while back my homemade merp screens. Oh, wow. From when I was 13. <laughs> yeah. And it's graph paper glued nice. into, into, into white card. So small now that I can't read it because yeah. I, don't, I don't have my young eyes anymore. And because of the sheer number of attack tables in MERP, there's four of them. <laughs> You're not going to sit with four screens, are you? But, I'd, but they were there. It's just they were, a big table. They were just handy as references. And uh, I even I even did my own my own dragons. Although that's they're simply copies. That's a copy of a Dragonlance. That's a Dragonlance, yeah. Like, and uh, I think that I think that's definitely a D and D picture as well. I can't remember where from. Yeah. I mean, it, it looks it looks definitely in that world. Yeah, I think it is. Um, so yeah, God, Merp. We're talking about we're talking about Tolkien again. <laughs> yeah, this this is your new podcast. It's Rings of Power and Merp. Yeah. So so we need we need an angry picture of um, Gandalf drawn by Angus McBride with red uh, arms yeah. looking angry. So we could say, you know, oh, whatever. <laughs> but honourable mention when it comes to comics for Howard Chaykin's work on the Swords of Heaven, the Flowers of Hell. Or is it the Flowers of Heaven, the Swords of Hell? I never remember. Because I think that was actually written by Moorcock as well. 
Well, well, that was that was one of the ones that was mentioned in Imagine, and that mm. I I always looked for and I could never find. Uh, and it was, is it Ericos? It's, yeah, and Titan have reprinted it, right? Uh, in the last couple of years, so you can get a hardcover of it now. I've got an old paperback of it, which is I think the spine is cracking on it now, but it's a little it's a little bit bigger than the Titan one, so it's um, a better reproduction of the art, but now available. In, in Titan reprints, how a checking out in, in that is absolutely glorious. Mm. It's beautiful, really, really nice. Story is quite slight and light, yeah. lit, but the art is really fabulous. But I mean, how a checking painted art, you're not going to go far wrong with it. You can't right? go wrong there. No. And it's got that got that level of realism to it, and um, the how a checking out as well. Yeah. So, yeah. Now then, because we're winging it, I need to refer to my winging it questions that I had for you. It's not. It's not a critical table from Merv. It's not a critical table from Merv. What I should have done was put something together and make you roll on it. Yeah. Um, Grognard file style. You're a gamer. Were you most mostly D and D? You said you played Stormbringer, but you you're mostly a D and D. I I saw. I had the basic set and the expert set. I think I played that once and then played AD and D once. But like by the time I was ready to run games, I just couldn't quite glom onto it. So I I got Merp and I ran Merp a lot and uh, subsequently Stormbringer uh, and then the Judge Dread game uh, played a lot of and the Star Wars game played a lot of yeah. um, and I feel like all those all those games after D&D they were maybe a bit more complicated but they made more sense because they all had a core mechanic and yeah. I don't feel like D&D ever did or I never quite worked out what it was so I you know I had all the D and D books, and I read them a lot, but I never actually played it. And it, you know, and I've I've played it, you know, in my forties. Yeah. <laughs> but I, as a teenager, just sort of flirted with it, really. But yeah, really, just loads of Merp and loads of Stormbringer, and 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 lots of sort of one-offs of other games. I played Traveller once. Mm. I played the Star Trek role-playing game once. I think played Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles once. You know, it was like every couple of months, one of us would buy one of these games and would run one edition of it. But it yeah. was it was Merp and Stormbringer that really stuck. You know, these these uh, license games because you had mm. something else to fall back on. You had the 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 books. Um, you know, this all this other material that you could bring into it, and you'd get a sense of the world. Whereas with D and D, I think at the time I just felt, but well, I, I don't know, I don't know enough about the world, you yeah. know. And obviously there were three or four different world, different, different settings back then, and I could have yeah. made my own up. But uh, yeah, it's just something about having a having um, a, a, an, a an existing universe to fall back on to, and and going back to the Tolkien bestiary, I use that a lot in my games, and, yeah. and obviously Moorcock. There's just so much. I think you've talked about so much. There's just so much fodder for mm. making up your own games in that because you know it's like seventeen crazy ideas every other paragraph. You know. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I only played. AD&D was my gateway to gaming. I think I was 11 or 12 when I was invited to go and join someone's AD&D campaign. And then I think the first game I ever ever bought myself, I think I saved up my pocket money and got Dungeon Master's Garden Players Handbook first edition. It's crazy to think that in 1983 or whatever, um, they were costing 15-odd quid each. Yeah, you know, in 1983. So you 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 you're having to spend like 30 quid 
to get the car books for Dungeons and Dragons in 1983. Yeah, amazing. It's like 80 now, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) And my folks, I don't think I bought it myself. Maybe it was a pocket money thing. I thought, oh, my folks got me, I got Merp. So from that point onwards, we played a lot of Merp. And then I went down, oh, things like Twilight 2000, discovered Call of Cthulhu and all that business, all good stuff. But I never did play any original rules, Dungeons and Dragons. Never played third edition, never played second edition, never played third edition, never played fourth edition. When fifth edition came out, I checked it out. I quite like fifth edition. Yeah. I think it's quite tidy. It's quite easy to pick up. I still think it's silly that you have 3D6 for your core stats when actually what all that really matters is the bonuses or the penalties. Yeah. They really could take a fair approach and just have you rated as plus one zeros or minus ones or whatever. Still a little bit silly. There's stuff in that game that's for nostalgia's sake, though. You know... I'm just trying to explain that to new players because the group I game with, uh, there's Phil Mailerhouse, of course, who used to sit in the front room and watch movies and drink wine while we were all being nerds in the kitchen <laughs> until we finally convinced her to come and join us and she's never never looked back. Yeah. There's my cousin Emily, who hadn't played till probably four or five years ago. We convinced her to play because she was going out with a guy who played D&D. My friend Gemma, um, who'd never gamed before. And it was interesting because I think the first game they ever came and played, I fell back on something that I always do because, number one, I'm too lazy to read new rules, and number two, I'm too lazy to read complicated backgrounds. So I like to come up with my own settings and my own games, and I love to use Barbarians of Lemuria because it is so easily and eminently hackable. You can hack that game in half an hour. You don't need the rule book. And I did this on Saturday night. We played a science fiction game, which was kind of Outland Stroke, Alien Stroke, Event Horizon Stroke, Pandorum kind of setting. Sat them all down, worked through the characters together, ripped off loads of stuff from things like Alien Isolation just to throw into the game, like Seeks and Corporation and Sevastopol Station and stuff like that, just as a starting setting, and just used Barbarians of Lemuria. And it was really easy. But I remember when I said do you all fancy playing Dungeons and Dragons? They were like, oh, now we're really stepping up into the big leagues. And I felt really offended. So I was thinking, <laughs> no, my, my, I really like my game. It's really great. But the fact that they've got a character sheet that looked complicated, they thought, now we're moving up to the big leagues. Yeah. And none of them would ever read or remember anything to do with anything between games. But they all went out and bought players and books. What is it? about Wizards of the Coast and Dungeons and Dragons that makes people buy their product. They have never, ever bought a single other product for any other game. But Dungeons and Dragons, they all ran out and bought players and books because they thought, this is like the scientific big boys and big girls way of role-playing. Yeah, incredible. I think it's it's that nostalgia thing. It's that um, you feel like you're kind of stepping into kind of this grand tradition, you know. I mean, you, you... you know, I I feel like when when we were getting into gaming in in the eighties, I mean the impression I got from White Dwarf, which everyone used to read, White Dwarf magazine, mm. um, I got the impression that by the time I got into it, everyone was sort of a little bit bored or a little bit tired of D and D and just wanted to try other games, yeah, because other games were more realistic or they're more complicated or or whatever, and like maybe they'd gotten the impression that D and D was just kind of running around dungeon and fighting monsters, and that was that was the be all and end all so i I always I was kind of felt like 
there was a push to play other games and play lots of different games. I mean, yeah. obviously, that was like White Dwarf was being published by Games Workshop, yeah. who by that point didn't own uh, the, the license to publish D&D in the UK. So mm. it was in their interest to get people playing other games. Mm. Um, but that's that's just definitely the impression that I got. But I think now people just like just Dungeons and Dragons as a, as, a, as a phrase, it just means it's just got that sort of totemic power yeah. that you know maybe twilight 2000 or mutant zero or any any you know metamorphosis alpha yeah just you know it just wouldn't mean anything to to people because it's not it's been true. talked about it's not been sort of whispered about you know i mean i i heard so much about dungeons and dragons before i even knew what it was you know mm. and i kind of always got the impression oh it's about puzzles and it's about these intellectual problems and it's about all these kind of different things it's like and at the end of the day it's not you know it is about fighting monsters and mm. and a lot of the time in a lot of role-playing games you're doing exactly the same thing it's just sat around a table and you're kind of being a character and you're deciding what you're going to do but there is just something about the, the sort of totemic name yeah and the, the feeling that you are kind of reaching into this kind of rich history and this you know this this gaming tradition you yeah. know which maybe you don't get thinking about other role-playing games where it's, it is yeah. exactly the same yeah uh, funny enough emily she 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 says are we playing D and she uses it interchangeably mm. and I, I know that I've, I've regularly seen twitter conversations where people get really irate about that <laughs> and yeah. all, all grognard's getting a real stew and a real pickle about that and about the fact that D D has this hold on things, but you know it's all good. If Emily says, "Are we playing D and I say, "Yes." Then she then she says, "What are we playing?" And I say, <laughs> yeah. um, "A made up space game, but I will make some blue milk." <laughs> so, uh, because the first time they ever came over and we, we played West End Games Star Wars, which was the first time I'd, I'd ever run it or play it, uh, because I got the the anniversary slipcase. Oh right, yeah, it's really yeah. nice. I've never never played it before. Really love it. Really love the system. But just just for kicks, I made blue milk, and we all got rat assed on blue milk, which was uh, coconut rum, blue balls, bit of amaretto, and then topped up with coconut milk, just in a big jug. Yeah, and uh, I got white beakers that looked a bit like stormtrooper armor. <laughs> it was it was really cool. So yeah. we but we we played Saturday night. What are you playing? What are we, are we are we playing D and D? Yeah, we're playing D and D. What are we playing? Well, we're not playing Star Wars, but we're playing a space game. But I'll still do Blue Milk. And she was like, "Champion, <laughs> it's like, brilliant." Yeah, I, I, I just got. I mean, I say just. I think it, it wrapped up in about March. But I was playing. Uh, I mean, for the first time ever in a in a long running campaign as a player, not running the game of of D and D, and it was it was with a, a bunch of what I would call young people hmm. uh, that um, I kind of met through the Facebook Dungeons and Dragons group and. They could not understand the concept of playing any other game other than D&D. I think they had no interest whatsoever. Yeah. It, it just had, had to be D&D. And sometimes I'd look, I'd look on that on that group and, you know, someone would say something like, um, I'm, I'm, uh, I wanted to convert D&D to, to, to be a Star Wars game, to do a Star Wars mm. hack for D&D. And 
I, I think, you know, it should have known better, but I did answer saying, you do realise there are three Star Wars role-playing games you can actually get. They've been designed to, to do this. But, you know, yeah, people, you know, it's 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 one thing or, or another. It's, you know. It's it's fine, isn't it? It's fine. It's, yeah. it's like... You can't, you can't tell people how to have fun. No, no. And there's certainly an element with gaming where... It's like if you go on some fucking team away day at work and they decide they want to do an escape room and you just think, why am I coming to work to be forced into fun? And and you get that sense sometimes from people who grumble that people want to play Dungeons and Dragons. Well, there's lots of other games out there. Why don't we do it? But it's like saying to someone who wants to go to a Justin Bieber concert, why are you going to a Justin Bieber concert when you could go and see Clutch? <laughs> so, well, maybe I don't fucking like Clutch. You might like Clutch. I like Clutch. Oh, uh, it's all good. Anyway, back to my list of pre-prepared okay. questions for, for our wing in it. So, you've already talked about your favourite Elric cover, which is Sailor on the Seas of Fate, and we've talked about favourite Elric artists. But what about non-Elric Moorcock? What's what's your favourite, most striking non-Elric Moorcock book cover? I mean, the, the one that really springs to mind, and I've got it in front of me somewhere, the Bob Haberfield Mad God's Amulet oh. with the the the, the eyes oh, yes. in the fortress. Oh yes. Again, I as I say, I saw some of these when I was when I was a youth, and I just could, I I was not into it at all. This sort yeah. of surreal, you know, you know, where's the guy with the sword? But there's some the, these the, the Haberfield in particular, the ones that they look like late period psychedelic. Yeah. records they're absolutely stunning and mm. uh you know there's a sort of photographic i mean i guess it's airbrush right but yeah. uh, there's a sort of photographic element to it it's so striking they're so strange that yeah i i, I can't help but have those images burned into my into my brain mm. um I, I i like his um the queen of the swords and knight of the swords as well that sort of weird sort of buddha for arioch yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I mean, Nicole Kidman's Builder's Bum as well. Oh, on the, the Eternal Champion. Yeah, that, yeah, that's the one I had. And yeah. and again, I, I at the time, it just wasn't doing it for me. But just the audacity mm. to do that on a on a fantasy book. Um, yeah. Like the 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 the, the Elric of Mel Nibonet that we were talking about before the Lawrence uh, Lawrence cutting version yeah. that just does not look like a fantasy book to me or my what i would understand a fantasy book yeah. to look like because in my mind in the 80s they all look like sail on the sea of fate or uh michael whelan stormbringer you know or, or or rodney matthews you know just very sort of recognizable yeah um this sort of elfin elric character um i mean i've got these um I should grab the chronicles of quorum and the swords of Corum. At the time, I thought it was a really good idea to get these books in omnibus. Yeah. So this is Mark Salwowski. Yeah, I really like that cover. Yeah, it's it's very beautiful. It's it's very precise and it's bold. And I don't think you'd get a book cover like that now. Mm. And you wouldn't have got a book cover like that ten years before. But just it's that absolute sort of midpoint, and it's a, a fantastic uh, image of Corum there. Yeah, um, I think it's the same artist that did the cover to the Count Brass Chronicles of Count Brass. It is. Yes, that's the one. I remember at the yeah. time not being mad keen on that, but as the years have gone, I've really become more and more fond of that cover. Mm. 
and um, yeah. so it's so it's like a it's one of the guardians of the Camargue, isn't it? On yeah, a, on a horned horse with his flame lances on his shoulders, and the Camargue's behind him, and there's an army fox. I think that's a really really terrific cover. I think it's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. because it's it's unusual in that it doesn't feature an eternal champion character, unless was to think that that is Heartmoon. Well, I I presumed it was, but it bothered me that he wasn't blonde because yeah. he talks about him as blonde. Right? That, that's why to me it always just looked like one of the guardians of the Camargue, just yeah. kind of on patrol. But I guess it must be Hartman because he's he's looking onto that island and mm. there's his missus. Um, I'm tr- trying to remember back to Castle to um, Chronicles of Castle Brass. Um, it's alternate reality, isn't it? And she's is she dead? I can't remember. Anyway. We'll get to that. We'll get to the Chronicles of Castle Brass one day because, for Christ's sake, we're going to have to talk about the quest for Tanalon. I rue the day. I rue the day. But yeah. So, but well, are you a, are you a fan of the the book Count Brass? Because I read that recently, and I thought that was a really strange, interesting sort of dreamlike. You know how how do you follow up the history of the rune staff? Yeah. You do this sort of strange thing where all your uh, all your dead fellows they're sort of alive but sort of dead at the same time and this yeah you know, the I, whole temporal I, I remember thing. at the time really liking count brass because it was so different and i think it's tarragon is the main yeah um, yeah villain in that rather than Melidas, isn't it uh, I, I remember sagging a little bit through the champion of garathon and yeah yeah a- again the only time he wrote a at the time, you only yeah. wrote a, a female eternal champion. You kind of wanted it to be better. Yeah, mm. and I remember reading Quest for Tanalon, and the the ending just I uh, didn't buy it at all. I thought it was really, I, th- I thought it was just it, it smacked of an author thinking, right, I'm done with all this now. Um, yeah. Let's tie it up in a neat bow, and I will never speak of it again. And yeah, uh, yeah. no, it didn't work with me. So I think my, my other favorite. Mocock cover. That's probably quite an unusual one. It's my Breakfast in the Ruins hardcover. Oh right. Yeah. Yeah. Really, really like that one. It's a it's just a little bit a little bit odd, a little bit like Yeah, that. it's a bit Rene Magree, isn't it? They're looking at uh surrealism. Yeah. Does it say all the artist is? Probably not. Quite randomly, there's the Fantasy Masterworks edition of the history of the rune staff. Has got a really fantastic cover. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. There's some like Dance of the End of Time uh, series that have similar, I think, the same artist yeah. or definitely in the same vein as those. Yeah. So once again, this is terrible for an audio medium. We're now just <laughs> now just showing each other book covers. Uh, but anyway, back to my this. This is going to be my final random question for you. Okay. Sure. Going to go out on a limb a little bit here, but sell me. On Steve Hogarth Marillion. Okay, well. Because I got Season's End back in the day for Christmas when it came out. And and I put it on and I think I listened to it once. And then I tried again about six months later. And I could never get over that sense of betrayal I felt that Fish was no longer part of Marillion. So whilst I'm part of that Twitter RPG nerd Marillion gang, uh, it, it, it stops sharply. <laughs> Just after I, clutching at straws, I w- I would have a very hard time selling anyone on season end. Yeah, um, I I greatly prefer the um, un unmade uh, 
songs that they did immediately following clutching at straws that have a lot of the same material that's eventually in the season's end um and they they went through a they definitely went through a rough patch of oh god what the fuck are we gonna do what are mm. we trying to be because the album after that is holidays need and which is like they're they're trying to do a radio album but i would wholeheartedly urge you to listen to brave and i would mm. urge you to listen to marbles uh and i would I mean, I listen to a Marillion podcast and they don't like the album .com, but I think the album .com, which appropriately came out in 2000, which is when they launched the Marillion.com website, yeah. there's there's some fantastic stuff on that. And yeah, you don't certainly don't go into it thinking you're going to hear a continuation of the of the Fish Marillion. Yeah. Um, and I and I don't think um, listening to solo Fish, you're going to get a continuation of the. Uh, no, that didn't work for me either. No. <laughs> um i think i think brave brave is an incredible album brave is uh i mean if you want a contentious statement i think that's the best album pink floyd never made ah, uh, interesting. it's it's the wall but with better tunes and no misogyny yeah that's that's a fantastic album i'd, I'd say marbles is a fantastic album give some of those i mean there's so many marillion albums now and they they go up and down the, the last couple have been really really good and you know Hogarth, he's he's an eighties guy. He, mm. he loves his sort of, he loves the the Blue Nile, and 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 he loves this kind of mature. You know, they're doing sort of mature pop mm. rather than the kind of sort of angry, spiky stuff that um, uh, Fish was doing. But I, I guess there's a bit of a continuum because like clutching at straws is a bit smoother and, and mm. a bit more uh, considered and a, and a bit more mature. But um and yeah, yeah, Brave Brave is an incredible album. Afraid of Sunlight, which is shorter, is actually probably a better album because it's a step away from you know sounding so much like Pink Floyd. Yeah. Um yeah they they've done some incredible stuff, but they've done a lot. So you could easily be caught in the mire, but yes, yeah, Seasons End is a. I mean, the the, the first um, the first gig I ever saw was Marillion on the Seasons End tour, and I right. absolutely loved it. You know, yeah. but um, as as an album, yeah, it's they're they're, they're struggling a bit. Mm. Um, but uh, yeah, they they became they became a a different band. You yeah. know, well, I've I've got a small confession to make anyway, and that's that. At the time, I didn't like misplaced childhood or clutching the straws. <laughs> oh, really? Okay, okay. I, 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 I only grew to appreciate them a little bit later. Misplaced yeah. childhood, I got on board with a little bit later, but there was yeah. there was part of me that um, really objected to lavender and Kaylee. <laughs> and but then once I kind of get used to taking those in as part of that broad suite of music, yeah, it 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 works. Yeah, clutching yeah, at straws. My... I didn't get until ten years ago, and yeah. then I think I listened to it, and the penny dropped, and I thought I have wasted thirty years of not listening to this album, yeah. and I love yeah. it now. Yeah. Mm. Um. I. I mean. I. I loved. I loved that early period so much. But go, going back, I. I find myself a little embarrassed to listen to script for justice here and particularly for Gazi. now i mean i loved it so much it was like, oh this is so, it's so lyrical and yeah. it's so sophisticated and it's so intelligent and yeah. it's you know it is it's it's exactly what you want when you're a 14 year old oh 15 yeah. year old the, the tortured poet in all 14 year olds yeah. loves yeah. those albums yeah but i, I unashamedly script for justice here perhaps lesser but i unashamedly love fugazi still 
even though I completely acknowledge how pathetic the the narrator is or the or the, uh, the singer of those songs you know the that car, that car of fish and just how miserable yeah <laughs> miserable yeah. and self-pitying he is and yeah. particularly when it comes to stuff like she chameleon it's like oh jesus dude yeah yeah get, it's, get a grip <laughs> yeah why couldn't i see it at the time but yeah. you know i you know i've still got those albums i pick them on every I, now and I say, again i still unashamedly love it and i will listen to it regularly because i think a point comes where the meaning of the lyrics just kind of recedes and the 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 voice becomes part of the music mm. you know and that's and that's where i am with those albums now but yeah i really i really do like clutching at straws a lot now and it's probably if i'm in the car and some marillion goes on it's usually most likely to be clutching at straws so yeah but anyway on well, that we, we've covered more cock we've covered role-playing games we've covered marillion yeah. i think a lot of People in the late forties, early fifties are going to be very happy listening to this, yeah. uh, and maybe everyone else has been completely. <laughs> yeah, and Rings of Power as well. And Rings of Power, yeah. Mm. yeah. The, the, the show we dreamed of when we were playing Merp. What what a crazy roller coaster ride! Well, the good <laughs> thing is we're coming back at some point in the next few weeks, hopefully, to talk to Guy Lawler. Yeah. About Saga of the Man Elf, so that'll be cool. Oh my yeah. God, is it Lawler or Lawley? I really feel bad now. Lolly. Sorry. Oh, he's Lolly. Lolly. Sorry, Guy. Guy Lolly. And uh, yeah, we'll get that in the bag in a couple of weeks' time, hopefully. But in the meantime, thank you, Simon Perrins, for finally coming on the show. And also tell us about your art station page, your web shop, and all those other good things that people, wherever, wherever can find them. Uh, well, I've, yeah, I've got an Et- Etsy. Uh, store which I keep thinking I should close because I never make any sales off it and it just costs me every month. Like when I when I first put it up, I got a I got an order within like a day and I think oh this is I'm made you know and it was like the last order I ever got. Yeah. So um yeah I've I, I guess if you uh, go on my Twitter which is hf underscore tf which is a Marillion reference and. Yeah. Yeah, if you go to my um, Instagram, you you'll be able to kind of find links to this stuff. But yeah, I've got art, uh, uh, prints, and things for sale. I, I'll occasionally just kind of pop up and say something daft on Twitter, but I usually just listen to other people's conversations, other people's podcasts. So it's nice to contribute because I, I listen I listen to your show and I always want to interject occasionally. But uh, yeah, I've I've finally got got a chance to. And if ever you want to do in the future. Pick up your phone, record a voice file, and send it to me, and we'll stick absolutely. it on anyway. Yeah, absolutely. So on, on that subject of web shops, um, I, I did open a Redbubble store with some uh, merchandise with some of the commissions that I remember saying to you about two years ago. So yeah, when people start buying this stuff, you know, we'll 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 split the split the Redbubble profits, <laughs> and then one day someone ordered sixty five quid's worth of stuff, and I was like, score! Wow. And it, and it was Phil. <laughs> it was Phil. She bought stuff so we had cards to send to patrons. Yeah. <laughs> and I think she bought me a she bought me a water bottle with the Clint Lanley Elric on it. And I was, I was like, oh, I was like, oh, oh, thanks though. Thanks though. But there was, there was a tiny seed of disappointment. <laughs> well, you know, the, you the know. option to have that stuff is always always there. Yeah. It's true. not going away. True. Right. Cool, man. Thanks again. And, All right. Uh, we will reconnect very soon. Yeah. Well, you take care, and I'll speak to you soon. 
Massive thanks to Simon, not only for joining me in Derry and Tom's, but for all of his marvellous work for Breakfast in the Ruins over the last three years. We roamed all over the Moonbeam Roads in this one, and we'll be back soon with any luck to follow up with a chat with Guy Lawley. But in the meantime, check out Simon's art station page and his Etsy store. I'll link to them in the show notes. Before we go, thanks as ever to our patrons. First, those without tear. Anthony Piconti, Sebastian Weetabix, Tim Cardos, and Dave Dempster. And to our chaos engineers, Andrew Slickluna, Andrew Van Ness, Anthony Porter, Benjamin Fletcher, Dave Griffiths, Dave Voxman, Jim Kirkland, John W. Lays, Jules Lawrence, Mal Pertwee, Matt Saltz, Menion, Nelbert, Paul McRandall, Simon Perrins, of course, Tony Milazzo, and Scott Butler. Now, Scott joined us last month, but he dropped me a line to tell me of his story with the Moonbeam Roads, and, as is customary, I'm going to read it here. And he says, I'm currently based in inner city Sydney, Australia, though increasingly I suspect I've slipped through into a parallel version of my original reality, no doubt due to the machinations of some entity of the highest fears. I came to Michael Mocock in my mid-teens through a random assortment of his works discovered in the local library. I was also a role player at this time, but never really connected Mocock to RPGs until my university years, when I fell in with a group of gamers playing Stormbringer. Much of what I read of Mocock in his early years was his more sci-fi stories, The Warlord of the Air, The Ice Schooner, etc., as well as the Jerry Cornelius novels, and a small number of Elric shorts and excerpts from the pages of Dragon magazine and the like. My first foray into Mocock roleplay fell very much into the colour and trappings of his work as you've referred to it. Very much power gaming in the Young Kingdoms, with very little by way of Mocockian themes. More a bunch of late teens, early twenties roleplayers off on fantasy trips, with three demon swords apiece and plans to rule the million spheres. Over the years I have uncovered bits and pieces of other series, but struggled to get my hands on complete volumes, or runs of stories. So I've read pieces of Elric, Hawkmoon and others, but I don't ever recall stumbling across Corum or Erikos. Thanks for the podcast, as it has reawakened my interest in Michael Mocock's work and I'm now avidly searching for good collections. And back to the Donblas, we have New, Lee Gary, and Hot Off the Press, Mary Catherine. Thank you both so much. Lee, also known in the gaming community as CyberEdge7, said, Mike is my favourite author, and I have a bookcase dedicated solely to his work. I started reading his books when I was 12. As for what works I hold most dear, that would be Fortress of the Pearl, The Revenge of the Rose, and The End of Time books. As for me, I'm very active in the gaming community and I run four campaigns a week, which includes D&D and Shadowrun. Ariok awaits Trump. Thanks for that, Scott, and Lee. It's much appreciated. We love hearing this stuff. Hands of real across the world, my friends. And, I might add, I sincerely hope Ariok awaits our ridiculous overlords too. And now, on to our Jugaderos. Many thanks to Alexander Harris, Ian Stead, Loz, Taylor, Matthew Broom, Toby White, Tom Murphy, Mark Hebden, Graham Holden, and Jason Connolly. And finally, eternal thanks to our patron demons, Andy Darby, Clarky the Cruel, 
Fred Keish, Gareth Wilson, Imria, Jenny Stem, Jay Razor, Joe Monty, Liam Jay, Miles Reed Lobato, Mark Men, Neil Burton, Paul Hillary, Randall Gatlin, Steve Round, the OG patron Norman Beresford, Robert McMillan, and, new to the Donblass, tied to the mast, and in the midst of a thousand-year dream, Gwen Barlow. In a brief moment of waking, Gwen explained the arrival. I found the podcast through someone posting about it on the Many Worlds of Michael Moorcock Facebook group, so I'm catching up on your earliest episodes at the moment. I'm enjoying your podcast very much. I'm so happy to be listening. Big Moorcock fan, obviously. And also, I've recently emigrated from Manchester to Rotterdam. So hearing you all talk about these favourites with your gorgeous Yorkshire accents is a bit of a salve for the homesickness. The first Moorcock I read was Behold the Man, which I liked well enough, but it didn't turn me into a super fan. So it was a few years before I picked up anything else. When I did, it was the dances at the end of time. That one instantly became one of my all-time faves. I totally fell in love with its baroque prose and decadent characters, who were such a vibrant extrapolation and exaggeration of the 1890s literary milieu the book was spun out from. So I came to the rest. Elric, Cornelius, Von Beck, a bit later still. Elric's my pick of the fantasy characters. An ex-library first edition of the Stormbringer hardcover is a pride and joy. And I'm also a huge fan of the later stuff, Mother London, Pyat, The Whispering Swarm. In terms of inspiration, the biggest influence Moorcock's had on me would be as editor of New World. The ethos and attitude of his stewardship of that magazine and its writers, and the way it fused writing, genre, and contemporary pop art, made such a lasting impression. It was way before my time, but I pick up the magazine format issues when and where I can. David Britton's survey of that period, of the magazine, Eduardo Palazzo at New Worlds, is fantastic. And also Moorcock's non-fiction. Death is not an obstacle, where he breaks down his own writing methods, and into the media web, a collection of essays and journalism, which is a very comprehensive literary education all by itself. Catch me in the right mood, and I'd recommend it over an English degree. All that switched me on to Savoy Books through their publication of James Cawthorn's Hawkmoon adaptation, The Golden Barge, and My Experiences in the Third World War. Such a treasure. My own labour of love is writing a book for Savoy on David Britton's Lord Horror character, which is tangential to Moorcock in terms of inspiration. Right now, I'm on an Elric reread with the lovely Saga Press editions. I also found a complete run of the P. Craig Russell Stormbringer single issues in a comic shop, just up the street from me here in Rotterdam a few weeks ago. Cawthon's Stormbringer sketches coming out last year was a bit of a minor miracle, and I'm obviously very excited for the Citadel of Forgotten Myths in a couple of weeks, and the Woods of Arcady next year. I'm listening to the stuff you recorded three years ago now, but I really like you and Loz's humour talking through the Dreaming City. I was fully gone over the deadpan, six blokes sat around a fire waiting for a mysterious seventh bloke, and I really appreciated you and Natasha going into such depth on the Jewel of the Skull especially taking in the historical context of when it was written, thinking about the historical currents swelling around the zeitgeist at the time, as well as what might have been informing Moorcock's own political position as an anarchist, particularly when it comes to the anti-imperialist themes. I loved Natasha's observations about the compassionate writing of the monsters and their suffering at the hands of heroic adventure characters like Count Brass. A really astute and important point about this kind of fantasy, which is probably lacking in more recent iterations of the genre. I very much value your perspective on fantasy being more informed by Robert E. Howard than the 1,000-page tomes. 
I share your affection for him too, and greatly prefer shorter and more condensed melodramas to the wordy epics that just go on a bit when it comes to fantasy. It's such an overall comprehensive and thoughtful engagement with Mocock's work at the same time as keeping a healthy irreverence shaped by love for the material, rather than cynicism. Really cosy listening. This is becoming podcast length in its own right. Hope it isn't too much. Keep on keeping on with the good stuff. That is amazing feedback, Gwen. Thank you. I can only hope we keep up with expectations as you work your way through what is now probably over 70 hours of gabbing. On the subject of Natasha, we've been trying to hook up again, but diaries just haven't been kind. And now she's up in and moving to the far end of the country. Well, the Midlands. So the middle of the country, sort of. Far enough away, anyway. That said, I'm taking her for dinner later to say farewell, so she'll owe me some virtual Derry and Tom's action once she's settled into her new surroundings. Over on Podbean, Chris Neely left a comment on our Night of the Swords Book 3 episode. Chris said, Revisiting this episode on Thanksgiving here in America, winding down with a good belly laugh about salty rhubarb and hedonistic chaos playing with random genocide. For these random terrible things, I must say I'm thankful to ponder on the moonbeam roads as I visualise Hieronymus Bosch dropping acid while thumbing a few pages of the multiverse. You madman, I love you beyond the laws of physics. Well thank you Chris for all of your love over recent months on the Podbean platform, and I hope you and all of our friends across the pond had a peaceful and satisfying Thanksgiving. We've had some specific feedback on our Halloween special too over on YouTube, courtesy of Tetsucat, but I'll save that for the new year when we're going to have a little follow-up where we're going to look at some very uncozy catastrophes. Coming up very soon though, it will be December, and time for our fourth Christmas-stroke birthday show. Amazing how the years are flying by. And for this year's special, we've decided to restore an old UK tradition, ghost stories for Christmas. So, we put four spooky stories to the patrons, and they chose The Devils of D-Day by Graham Masterton. It narrowly beat out The Ghost Pirates by William Herb Hodgson, and both have been distant runners-up in previous Halloween polls, so it feels about right that they will finally get their due. Therefore, we'll cover The Devils of D-Day, and then, if we don't overdose on port and snowballs over the festive period, we'll bang out The Ghost Pirates as a quick follow-up for New Year's Eve. No promises on that though, as we will drink a lot of port, snowballs, Malibu and Coke, and McEwan's export, and I'll probably eat my own body weight in cheese footballs and struggle to get off the sofa. Right, enough yakking. Don't forget you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at Breakfast Ruins. You can email us at breakfastruins@outlook.com. The webpage is breakfastintheruins.com. You can listen to Breakfast in the Ruins radio via the internet, most easily via Radio Garden, via either app or browser. Just search BITR Breakfast in the Ruins, or look at the Bradford UK blob on the Radio Garden map. We have our Patreon page too, and there are a few extra odds and sods on there. And finally, we'll have to wait until the next life, sadly, for Kevin O'Neill's take on Londra, as he passed away following the recording of this episode. He was a giant in the British comics scene, and a massive influence on my young brain back in the 80s. R.I.P. Kev. So that's it for now. We'll be back soon to celebrate birthdays and the festive season with the Devils of D-Day. But in the meantime, take care, stay safe, and we will meet again soon on the Moonbeam Roads.